WHMP. And welcome to the show. It is Talk to Talk. And as, uh, as we are blessed with each Monday, we have with us Senator Joe Comerford. Hello, Senator. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you on. Bill, uh, Bill is uh, Skyping in, and somehow Skype is misbehaving, so uh, we just lost him. So you're going to have to suffer me, Senator. <laughs> Buzz, you never a suffer. I, I'm <laughs> sure we'll get Bill back. And again, thank you so much for making the time to talk. Thank you. Dan just said, Bill, Bill back better. That's what, you know, what Dan said. So, <laughs> so uh, 55.9 billion dollar budget. Can you talk to us about what the Senate has done with the budget? Sure. Overall, I'm very pleased about the budget. It is a smart blueprint. And you remember that Congresswoman Barbara Lee is famous for saying that budgets are values and numbers. So this budget tells you a little bit about what the Senate values. It's not a perfect document by any means. Nothing is perfect. But it does throw down in things like public higher education, they're generational investments, actually historic investments in public higher education. Um, It breaks the ground on a lot of what I would consider rural priorities. Um, It funds rural school aid at a record 15 million. It uh, increases pilot, that's payment in lieu of taxes, to a record amount. Local aid goes up. Uh, The Chapter 90 formula, which is what funds our roads and bridges, has a special carve-out for places with not as many people but a lot of miles, which is what we have out here. Um, And we've been disadvantaged historically, but that ends with this budget. So there's a lot of good news in it. Um, Clearly, we have to do more in K-12, through especially for districts like Northampton and Amherst. Uh, And, you know... There's never enough money for housing, early child care, some of the real hard-hit sectors we have to continue to focus on. But there's some good outside sections. Um, That's the policy section Um, in the budget. It extends eviction protections, which I support. It actually makes public higher education uh, in-state tuition available to all, regardless of uh, immigration status. Uh, So, again, it's, um, it's a good blueprint and now it's on its way to conference. It sounds like a, a lot of these initiatives, when you, you began with talking about values stated in numbers, these are sort of pro-people components <laughs> to the budget. See, it is. It's a very human budget. Um, this, I really am very proud of the Senate's approach, um, and I'm proud of my colleagues. You know, we had a, a, a really a robust debate throughout And we talked about everything from, um, oh, and I should have mentioned RTAs get record investments, $194 million. What are RTAs? For the RTAs, uh, regional transit authorities, and that's in our area, PVTA and FRTA. um, And some carve-outs for innovation, uh, say, for example, like the microtransit pilot that FRTA is running, or perhaps some bike hookups for PVTA. It'll depend on what the... um, the transit authorities want, but there's there's significant funding there for them to go big um, and innovative. Um, that, that is so, so yeah. exciting. Now there is it a is. It's very exciting. There is a bill that Natalie Blay and yourself are involved in to limit increases on utility rates. Um, could you tell us about that? 
Sure, absolutely. Um, so Rep. Blay and I uh, have filed this bill now um, for um, two sessions. Uh, it is um, thanks to the work of the Acadia Center, uh, and that's a wonderful, wonderful research hub on climate and energy. Um, and the bill is actually very, very simple. It directs the Department of Public Utilities, or the DPU, to reject proposed rate requests that would lead to an electric or gas company making a profit margin higher than the average return on equity allowed in neighboring states. So, for example, our DPU has allowed utilities to earn upwards of 10%, but neighboring states would cap it, for example, at 9.1%. So we've asked ourselves, why do the utility companies operating in Massachusetts get to make more money uh, than in neighboring states, get to make a higher profit margin? That seems, um, that seems completely unworkable any day, but certainly as energy prices have been so steep. So this actually caps it. And um, I will say that it continues the work that Rep. Blay and I have done on grid modernization. We passed a grid modernization bill in the last climate, the big climate omnibus, and that was also putting people over profits um, as the grid gets modernized as it must for green energy. So I'm glad to be back um, with Rep. Blay. She's an amazing partner, and the Acadia Center is really stellar in its analysis. This, to me, seems like a no-brainer. It will help people immediately um, with their utility bills, uh, and I believe it has to get passed as we think about the kind of sea change that's approaching for energy. So just to, to recap, it, it isn't going to limit the ability of, of uh, the utilities to request an increase, but it's going to limit the amount of that increase that results in profit in their pocket, right? Well, the profit will limit, I mean, the profit it's allowed to make is directly passed along to consumers. So it will limit um, consumers, the hikes in consumer uh, prices, because it's going to put a cap on the profit margin for the utility. That's really great. You know, we are joined, uh, technologically, we lost Bill Newman for a while. He's Skyping in today. Hello, Bill. Buzz, uh, Senator, thanks so much for being with us. I'd like to know this. There's been reports on the glacial pace of legislation in the Massachusetts Great and General Court, that's the legislature, (laughs) this session. And I'm wondering whether or not that is your experience, and in particular, whether that uh, phenomenon is going to impact the potential for passage of this bill and other bills that you are advocating for? Yeah, no, it's a really good question, Bill and, uh, and Buzz. And we have to be accountable for this in the legislature. Uh, you know, um, I've seen those reports, too, in every outlet uh, that they've popped up in. And um, I will say that I do believe that the Senate and the House could work more productively together um, toward greater output. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think I'm not alone here. Um, many of my colleagues in both the House and the Senate think this. We all have bills that, like the one I just talked about with Rep. Lay, um, that we believe are good blueprints that will make real people's lives better. Um, and we want to see these pushed over the finish line. So, uh, you know, I, we've... Um, We wrote to committees, my team and I, at the beginning of the session and asked for early hearings 
on, you know, our priority bills. And so we've been off and running. Um, and for that, I'm very, very glad. Uh, we've had about 18 hearings so far on 18 bills um, that we filed. And so I feel like we're chugging along. I, I understand. Um, and, I, and I know that a lot of colleagues feel that they're chuggling along as well. We could demonstrate more of what we're doing to the public so that they understand um, that while we also increase the productivity. Well, maybe you are being productive, as productive as possible. And it seems to me that it's important to write a bill well. It's important to get the words right. It's important to have the coalitions together who will be able to pass it and to have it sure. implemented in a productive way. I mean, all of this takes does take time. So I, does, I know it. How, could, I mean, you're right. You're right. It does take time. And the, the legislative process is deliberative. And so it can absolutely seem like molasses to the outside. Um, and, you know, now that I see it happening and I realize the stakes of getting a bill right um, and the kind of examination that is necessary and the kind of listening that is required, right? Every bill gets a public hearing. There are hundreds of pages of testimony that come in for each proposal. They have, you know, many interviews happen. But even still, I do think that the public could expect us um, to work collaboratively um, toward greater productivity. And, uh, you know, again, I don't think there's anyone in the legislature that would say differently. I'd be interested to uh, know more about the uh, budget situation. I know that the House and the Senate both have past budgets, which means it goes to a committee now to reconcile, I take it. Could you tell us where that process is and what are the differences between the budgets that we should be paying attention to? Sure. Um, it's uh, The conference committee was named after the Senate passed its budget. And um, so on the Senate side, it's uh, Chair Mike Rodericks and Senator Cindy Friedman um, and uh, of the Democrats and then uh, Senator... Pat O'Connor, who's the ranking minority member uh, on Ways and Means. And so the same has happened for the House. And now they'll begin, you know, um, they'll begin looking at each other's blueprints. Certainly that work had already started. The chair, Chair Rodericks and Chair Michaelwitz, who's the House Ways and Means chair, have a very good relationship. And they've already been in contact the House did some very important things that the Senate didn't do, and I'd like to think the, the reverse is true. Um, and so now this is the time for us to um, hopefully find a compromise that keeps the best in both budget blueprints as they come together. Senator Joe, Joe Comfort, I know that you have a, a, another commitment and we have to get you out of here, but I just wanted to uh, end with uh, asking you about, I came with my regalia, to Greenfield Community College to march in a processional on the inauguration of our new president of GCC. I know that you were there. I got called away on a legal case, but so what What was your experience in this uh, ceremonial inauguration of another president of GCC? Yeah, thank you. I'm sorry I didn't see you. Um, boy, I think Michelle Shute is a great president. Um, I think she is passionate, capable, courageous, candid, I was on campus with her and uh, higher ed commissioner Noe Ortega just a, two weeks before the, her inauguration. 
and we toured the campus with the commissioner and we were talking all things higher ed and the Senate wants to make community college free for all, um, which is part of our budget blueprint. Um, I'm helping to lead that work and boy, Michelle had, uh, I should say President Shute had um, really fabulous, important, uh, both critique and also suggestions. And I saw her as a powerful leader in the community college space statewide, as powerful as she is um, emerging here in Western Massachusetts. So I'm psyched to welcome her. Um, And, you know, she's already been on the scene for, I think, 11 months. Uh, And just, I believe, opening hearts and minds to the power, the transformative power of GCC. Um, So I, I think she's prophetic and Um, We're lucky to have her. The search committee did well. uh, And I really think that GCC is such an unbelievable, powerful bedrock organization um, in the entire region, uh, but especially in Franklin County that, you know, we needed a leader um, to take it to that next level. We've been blessed with many good leaders of that college. And now we get Michelle. Um, So it's I'm, I'm very uplifted. Well, Thank you so much, Bill. Um, the, the senator has to go. She told us of an, uh, another commitment she has, but uh, any last words for Senator Comfort? Yeah, Senator, if you have a minute, can you put the last two topics together for us? We have a new president and people are very enthusiastic about it at GCC, and we have a number of proposals regarding community college tuition and uh, debt-free uh, community college education. We also have this question of whether bills are going to move in the legislature. Can you put those two together? Are we going to see that kind of reform and advancement for uh, an endorsement in this session? Yep, thank you. Uh, So the Senate president has made it very clear um, that this is her intention. Uh, In the budget is $15 million that would hire teams of researchers, allow for travel to Uh, campuses uh, nationwide, um, allow for symposia, allow for conferences uh, with the community college presidents, just to make sure that we get this right. Um, This is a go big or go home moment for the Senate. And we have to do it in a way that not only recognizes the tuition and fees as a barrier, but really recognizes what the total cost of college is for students and and the things that they grapple with. Um, So, Uh, One of the first big indicators of whether or not the House will accept um, free community college will be whether or not the Senate's budget proposal goes through. Um, We have record funding for community colleges um, and UMass and state colleges um, in the budget. UMass is up 19%, for example, in this budget. Um, The aid, um, which is the the deepest, most equity-focused Student aid is up a considerable amount. I I want to say 25%. So um, I I am hoping that our friends in the House, uh, and many of them are, again, their own public higher ed champions. I'm hoping that House leadership will embrace this precipice moment, right? I call uh, public higher education the equity engine. And if we're really going to build back better, um, to to, uh, take a phrase when we were missing you, Bill, if we're going to do that and we're going to do it equitably, higher education, public higher education, and grappling with the total cost of going to school, it's going to have to be paramount. Well, thank you so much, Senator. Um, it's always a pleasure. 
for me. Well, I thank you so much, and I'm sorry I have to exit a little bit early this morning. I'm going actually to greet the uh, DPH, Department of Public Health Commissioner, who is going to be in the region um, for, for the day, talking about things like um, equitable approaches to public safety, which is something Bill loves. Um, that's the EAPS program bill that Javier Luengo Garrido um, is a champion of, and he's also looking at trans health, so it's going to be a very good day. And we're doing that more and more, the delegation, bringing out our friends from the Healy Driscoll administration so they can see us and really understand the work we're doing. So um, yeah. So thank you, thank you. Somehow I, yes. did not, I did not think you were going to go and get a manicure. I knew you would be doing the people's work today. <laughs> Well, yes, you saw my nails. You probably would think I do need. I am out to, to welcome a great dignitary to the region today. So thank you so much, both of you, for your time. Thank you, Senator Joe Comerford. We're going to take a break. When we come back, it is First Monday with Bruce Miller. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Modest, very minimal increase in the police budget, largely uh, due to just regular contractual um, obligations. Holyoke is nothing like Northampton and Greenfield. The quality of life uh, issues or demographics, very, very different. So I can never compare our police departments. The challenges we have going on in our city are very, very different. 101.5-1400, we are the Valley. We are WHMP. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Every month across the Pioneer Valley, one in three families struggles to buy diapers. That's why the Northampton Radio Group is teaming with the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire region in support of their annual diaper drive. Stop by the United Way of Franklin and Hampshire region offices in Northampton and Greenfield or at any Leo Auto Group dealership on King Street and donate diapers throughout the month of June. By donating to the diaper drive, you can help keep area children healthy and families secure. This message brought to you by the Leo Auto Group, the United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire region, and the Northampton Radio Group. Oh, the places you'll go. This Dr. Seuss book might be the quintessential graduation gift. Broadside has it, plus other books for grads. Like What Now by Ann Patchett, Navigate Your Stars by Jesmyn Ward. Toni Morrison's The Source of Self-Regard, Selected Essays, Speeches, and Meditations. Browse Broadside Bookshop for inspiring books for graduates. How about Devotions, The Selected Poems of Mary Oliver? How about Rough Sleepers by Tracy Kidder? Or Cheryl Strayed's Tiny Beautiful Things? Browse Broadside, buy a book for a grad. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And welcome back to the show. Uh, on Saturday, the New York Times published an opinion letter by Will Roberts of Greenfield. Will is the uh, surviving spouse of the late attorney, Diane Esser, who I was, uh, by way of disclosure, I was lucky enough to be a law partner of Diane's for uh, 20 years or so. Um, she died uh, way too soon, uh, far too young. 
But Will wrote uh, an opinion letter for the New York Times, which was published in the New York Times, and it, it begins with this. There is a hard right and religious majority on the court, speaking of the Supreme Court of the United States, intent on imposing its ideology on a pluralistic, increasingly secular society. Worse, it is led by a weak chief justice who seems to exhibit no clear moral or legal leadership over his unhinged justices and their narrow ideologies. In the second paragraph of his letter, he argues that something has to be done about the court, and he suggests a mandatory retirement age of 70 for the court and all federal judges, saying that it would result in a more significant turnover on the court. He also proposes a 12-year term limit that could be enlarged but only enlarged by congressional approval, and he ends by saying, quote, something must be done. For people to view the court as legitimate requires an act of faith. The Supreme Court in its current makeup is squandering the people's faith. So that was an opinion letter by Will Roberts. This is first Monday of June, so it is a blessing to welcome Bruce Miller, the constitutional law scholar and professor emeritus of the Western New England University School of Law, who comes monthly on first Monday and schools us. Hello, Bruce. Yeah, Miller. hi, Buzz. Hi. Very apt and appropriate letter. Um, I, re I remember now uh, seeing it on, on Saturday morning and thought how, how effectively it, it captures much of what we've been talking about for the last, uh, last year or so. Uh, an aspect of, of this uh, out-of-control character of the, of the court um, that the uh, letter does, does not focus on, because quite properly it's focused on, on uh, the, the religious the degree of religious motivation of at least some of the justices is the is the effort by a, a majority of them uh, to eviscerate our we the citizens of the United States our ability to address environmental concerns in particular climate change um, if this court has its way our national government will not be able to do anything about climate change if the efforts that we take affect the interests, as the court sees them, of property owners. Of and capital. Justice yeah. of capital. Of, of just, Justice Alito is, 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 is pretty open about this. Um, uh, your listeners uh, will, will, may remember and are certainly familiar with uh, the decision a year ago, right at the same time as Dobbs came down, the court decided a case called West Virginia against the Environmental Protection Act, in which a majority ignored a statutory command from Congress to the EPA to require coal-fired power plants to, to employ the best, that's the language of the law, the best system to control emissions. The Supreme Court said, well, that language does not count. Uh, it does not authorize uh, the EPA to tell uh, coal-fired power plant owners uh, what kind of emissions controls they must install, because best is too vague. Um, in order uh, for the EPA to do anything that... Uh, 
affects what the court invented as a major question of policy or economics, the language from Congress not only has to be clear, it has to be specific and precise. And this oh, is a game so, only lawyers can play. So those 535 members of Congress who are each fantastic scientists well, exactly. and know exactly how to cure exactly. this problem. The use of the word best, which is the kind of language that Congress uses when they want to direct an agency to use its expertise to do what it's there for, um, Congress doesn't necessarily know what's best, but they know that they want whatever is best in, in, in the eyes of the people who do know to be done. The Supreme Court said, no, if, unless the specific measure has been authorized in so many words by Congress, the EPA can't do it if it affects a major question. What is a more major question than climate? So that was a signal for a decision that kneecapped the Clean Water Act. Last uh, week. Last week. Uh, the uh, West Virginia against EPA was about the Clean Air Act. This one is about the Clean Water Act. Uh, and this one also ignored uh, clear, at least clear in my judgment, statutory language. The language in this case from Congress uh, tells the EPA to protect the waterways of the United States, including wetlands, if those wetlands uh, are adjacent to existing waterways. If wetlands are not adjacent, they're not within the Act, and there are reasons for that that we can get into, but uh, the main idea here is that the statute says adjacent. What's the meaning of adjacent? Five justice majority, the Supreme Court says, well, adjacent is kind of a, a vague word. It it might mean it might mean um, nearby um, or in the same neighborhood, but it also might mean adjoining. That is, there has to be uh, a continuous connection between the wetlands and the water that's above the ground. Well, since it's a vague word, we're going to say that if Congress wants to use a word like that to govern the rights of property owners, they get special protection. There's a presumption in favor of the rights of property owners, even though the Clean Water Act is aimed at limiting the rights of property owners. Uh, uh, there's a clear when in doubt, business wins, planet loses. When in loses. doubt, w w at, and what we do is we ignore the word adjacent because it has ambiguous meaning, and and as a result, we uh, invent our own definition, which is this continuous connection. The result of this is that well more than half of the wetlands uh, protected by the Clean Water Act no longer are. Um, if they're if and uh, because they're on private property, that under this definition is no longer adjacent. Once again, the invention, and this is something that Bill talked about in his column on Saturday. We're going to get to the that. The invention in of new doctrine, a clear statement rule. If the EPA is going to undertake an action that affects the rights of private property owners, they can't be relying on a word that might have two different meanings. Now, the dissenters, Justices Kagan and Kavanaugh, explain why adjacent means neighboring. 
because Congress often uses the word adjoining when they want that direct connection. And they explain how nature doesn't care whether there's an above-ground uh, contiguous connection between a wetlands and another body of water or whether it happens underground. Uh, the importance of the wetlands is just the same. The impact of not protecting them is just the same. Wetlands' essential character to flood control, particularly flood control in urban neighborhoods that might not be close by, is, is just as essential. Wetlands are just as necessary to protect and replenish aquifers, uh, whether the, they're connected above ground or below ground. And if you care about the plain meaning of statutes, go to the dictionary, look up what adjacent means, and you'll find that it means nearby. Let me, it's different um, from adjoining. So we've got what the letter writer and Bill are talking about absolutely and plainly played out right in front of us for all to see. Well, this is a convening of the Talk to Talk Bar Association. And well, so I want to bring is. in a, a core member of the Talk to Talk Bar Association, uh, Bill Newman, right after we're going to break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about... Uh, Bill's column on Saturday and how it resonates with what Professor Bruce Miller is talking about. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Plans for the Community Resilience Hub in Northampton are moving forward. Mayor Gina Louise Shera signed an agreement to purchase the former First Baptist Church building located at 298 Main Street on Friday. Shira says together with its partner, Community Action Pioneer Valley, the city is excited to have secured a location for this critical community space. In addition to housing the Resilience Hub on the first floor, the building will also serve as headquarters for the Department of Health and Human Services Division of Community Care. Officials are investigating the cause of a barn fire in Amherst on Friday. According to the Amherst Fire Department, around 4.30 p.m., fire crews were sent to heavy smoke after a lightning strike on Meadow Street near the Hadley Town Line. When crews arrived, they found fire in a barn, which quickly spread to adjacent buildings, including the home. Three barns were destroyed in the blaze, but the house was able to be saved. There were no reported injuries. Tuition-free community college could be on the table for adults who are at least 25 years old under Governor Maura Healey's proposed plan. However, President of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, Max Page, points out tuition and fees only account for about one-fifth of the cost of attending college. And if we are really committed to having working-class students get to go to college, and not just go to college, but graduate, then we really need to respond to those needs. Page has said that the governor's plan is too limited in scope and instead says legislators should pass the Cherish Act, which would guarantee debt-free higher education for all ages at two-year and four-year institutions. For today, it'll be partly sunny and breezy, chance for an afternoon shower, high 68 to 72. Tonight, mostly cloudy, chance for a passing shower, overnight lows 48 to 52. And the outlook for Tuesday, sun and clouds, chance for scattered showers and thunderstorms, highs in the low to mid-70s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. 
Con solo dos días de margen, el presidente Joe Biden firmó el sábado una legislación que eleva el techo de la deuda de la nación, evitando un incumplimiento sin precedentes de la deuda del gobierno federal. Fue un desenlace decididamente discreto para un drama de un mes que desconcertó a los mercados financieros en el país y en el extranjero y provocó que jubilados, ansiosos y organizaciones de servicios sociales hicieran planes de contingencia en caso de que el país no pudiera pagar todas sus cuentas. En lugar de realizar una ceremonia pública con legisladores de ambos partidos mostrando el bipartidismo que Biden había citado en un discurso en la oficina Oval el viernes por la noche, el presidente firmó la legislación en privado como reflejo del ajustado plazo que enfrentan los líderes de la nación. El Departamento del Tesoro había advertido que el país comenzaría a quedarse sin efectivo este lunes, lo que habría conmocionado a las economías estadounidenses y mundiales. La Casa Blanca publicó una foto del presidente firmando la legislación en el Resolute Desk. En un breve comunicado, Biden agradeció a los líderes demócratas y republicanos del Congreso por su colaboración, un mensaje cordial que contrastó con el rencor que caracterizó inicialmente el debate sobre la deuda. En otras informaciones, Estados Unidos envió aviones de combate F-16 en una persecución supersónica de un avión ligero con un piloto inconsciente que violó el espacio aéreo en el área de Washington, D.C. y luego se estrelló contra las montañas de Virginia, dijeron las autoridades. Los aviones de combate provocaron un estampido sónico sobre la capital de los Estados Unidos en un intento de perseguir al Cessna Citation errante, dijeron las autoridades, causando consternación entre la gente en el área de Washington. La policía estatal de Virginia dijo que estaban buscando los restos, pero que aún no los habían encontrado. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we continue our conversation on Talk the Talk with constitutional law professor emeritus Bruce Miller, He's a constitutional law professor at Western New England University School of Law, where he was a beloved teacher for many, many years. We began our conversation today talking about the letter to the editor in the New York Times, the Sunday New York Times, which I think says something about what the letter indicated to the editors of the time in terms of its importance. The letter was written by Will Roberts, Wilson Roberts of Greenfield, Massachusetts. And he says, in, and I quote, I do not know what can effectively stop the court's drift from legitimacy. Something must be done. And I have a question for you, Professor Miller that this question raises and that the cases you've been discussing, the cases where the Supreme Court has gone out of its way to gut the Environmental Protection Agency, to gut the Clean Air Act, to gut the Clean Water Act. And there are two, so take them in whatever order you want. One is that the Supreme Court has gone out of its way to reach a decision to help the corporate polluters that it wants to help, that is a decision or decisions that it didn't have to reach. It's illegitimate in the sense that a conservative court would say, we reach the narrowest possible decision we can on these facts and don't reach to decide anything else because that's the conservative thing to do. But this is not a conservative court. This is a radical court. And the drift from legitimacy, it seems to me, is something that is hidden for most people 
because, you know, what are you talking about? The breadth of the question and all of that. That's just legalistic stuff no one can really understand. But the court is not drifting from legitimacy. The court, in my judgment, is seizing the opportunity to do exactly what it wants to do, which is to empower corporations, the very rich, the very Republican, and the elite in this country, and to turn us into an authoritarian country with a significant patina of democracy. It's not a drift in some ways. And I'd appreciate your perspective on those two aspects of this decision. Yeah, you know, largely, I, Bill, I agree with you on, 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 both, on both counts. Uh, let's, let's look at your first point, um, which is, uh, you know, the tradition on all courts of deciding only what is presented in the case. Um, how did the Supreme Court in this case called Sackett against EPA, the Clean Water Act case, violate that? All nine justices agreed that the Sackett's property sat on wetlands that under any definition were not covered by the act, and they, for that reason, could have gotten a permit from the EPA if only they had sought it. The court could have stopped there and decided only what was needed. This is a very important idea because the main job of our federal courts is to decide the cases and controversies before them. They tell us what the law is in order to do that rather than vice versa. And uh, avoiding controversial questions is a, is a, a time-honored uh, practice of the court. Leave those controversial questions um, uh, unless they're clearly wrong uh, in the environmental area to the agencies. But here we had five justices who, to get to your second point, leapt on this case brought by the Sacketts in order to go far beyond anything they were asking for and essentially hold that not only can uh, the EPA not tell the family what to do on their own land, but they redefined the entire Clean Air Act because they had a case in front of them that let them do it. This is an indication not of a drift, but of a race. And the point of the race, in this area at least, I think is to undo a part of the settlement of the New Deal, which, which is that we allow for a federal government to have power that can uh, be a countervailing force against corporate domination of the United States. This court is anxious, if they can, uh, to do away with that settlement and to re return us to something like the constitutional picture of 1896 or so, uh, when uh, corporate America essentially governed uh, the United States. So it, it, it is a race. It is purposeful. Uh, this court is as remarkably open about this as a court can be. Sure, there is a patina of legal reasoning, uh, but Justice Alito is quite clear about his invention of new doctrines to get to this result. And Bill, that, that was, to me, the most powerful point of your column in the Gazette on Saturday. And I want to I hear Bill uh, talk about that, but I do want to point out the lament of the right with respect to Supreme Court justice appointments and all federal judges' yep. appointment is that uh, they, they seek, they contend, 
to eliminate legislating from the bench. Yep. There should be a deference to the other yep. branches of government, yep. the one that makes laws, got Congress, and yep. the executive branch uh, implements it or enforces it. But, um, Bill, you were, you, were, you were talking about the character of this court in, in respect to what I think Professor Miller was just talking about in your column. It seems to me that there is little subtlety to what the court is doing. And while I think it's really significant, and you know, to get a letter published in the Sunday New York Times, you, you said something that hit, hit something that really resonated with the editors. And what Will Roberts was saying was, I do not know what can effectively stop the court's drift from legitimacy. And I agree with Professor Miller that the drift from legitimacy, if that's what it is, is really propelled by the race to establish a right-wing corporate-dominated government in the United States in which what matters is what do the corporations want, not how the people vote. Because that can just eliminate a lot of voting rights, and they have, and they may do more of that this month. Quite extraordinary. And I'm wondering where that gets us. My point, my question, my inquiry is, if the court is no longer viewed as legitimate because it's just another political branch of government seizing as much power of it as it can, and it can seize a lot, is there no end to this? Is this now rule by the Supreme Court that is in fact unhinged from ideology or precedent or history? Well, you know, great a great question, and and you know, I, I thought Will Will Roberts's proposals were were all interesting ones. Um, they were very idealistic. The idea of term limiting the Supreme Court probably requires a constitutional amendment, and that's something we can get only if we if we manage to convene uh, a new constitutional convention. Um, and I think that's that's pretty pretty unlikely. By the way, listeners should know in Massachusetts we have that very rule. We do. We do. Um, uh, the we do have uh, we do have an age an age limit in Massachusetts. You know, I'm not I'm not sure that it, that an age limit uh, would would do much. Um, the the key to this problem is the very very successful and relentless and determined effort by the Federalist Society uh, to shape uh, the federal courts and most especially the Supreme Court and their influence over Republican presidents to appoint people entirely because of their ideology. And they've tended to be people who are quite young when appointed. There is a, a counter tradition um, in our history that, that I think we ought to begin to pay more, more attention to when, when the court overreaches. And I think the best spokesperson for this counter-tradition was actually uh, Abraham Lincoln um, in the famous uh, debates in 1858 with Stephen Douglas when they were contesting for the Senate seat from Illinois. The Supreme Court had just decided Dred Scott, probably the most infamous and evil decision in the history of the United States. We had a final decision from the Supreme Court that said that Congress could not, in effect, ban slavery from the territories of the United States. It put slavery off the map for a political settlement and made, made certain uh, that the Civil War 
was, was upon us because it was the only remedy left. What did Lincoln say about Dred Scott? He said, Dred Scott is the law of the land as between Scott and Scott's quote-unquote master, Sanford. The Supreme Court has decided the case that way. But the rest of us should ignore the decision. We should not view it as a lawfully binding decision. It is importantly binding in that case. And he wasn't urging people to violate court orders, but he was saying that the other branches of government, Congress, the president, and most importantly, the people of the United States are entitled to have their own view of the Constitution. Uh, judicial review is not judicial supremacy. And if we had uh, a greater willingness on the part of our political leaders to say, we will effectuate our own constitutional vision, notwithstanding what the court has said, um, it, seemed, it seems to me we would have what our system allows, at least, in the way of an effective pushback. Of course, we had the Civil War. It, it, we fortunately had the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments afterwards, and those, in effect, overruled uh, Dred Scott. Lincoln's remedy was, was never uh, tested, uh, but the idea that Marbury against Madison, our decision authorizing judicial review, means judicial exclusivity and judicial supremacy is, I think, wrong. And, and President Lincoln, to be President Lincoln, was right to point that out. It's a tradition we ought to be taking a look at now. Judicial review, meaning the ability of the third branch, the, the judicial branch, to yes. uh, uh, say what rule the law the, is. Yeah. Rule on the constitutionality, yep. but the first and second branches, Congress and uh, the executive branch, do. Bruce, we are listen, going to, listen. We're gonna Bruce, Bruce Miller, I, I got it. We're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to ask you this. What you say is very idealistic. It's very moving. It's very, I think, uh, 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 beautiful. It's wonderful rhetoric. But Dred Scott ended up with a civil war. Yep. And that's the question I have for you. Yep. Is if we if we end if this is where we're heading, if the Supreme Court does not reclaim legitimacy. That's the question I have. Yep. Let's start there when we come back. Sure. Well, I want to start there, but I also want to bring it back home to the Clean Water Act case. You bet. We'll be right back, right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. 
This week's Shop Tuesday is the Riverside Pub. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., you can purchase a $50 gift certificate for only $35 to the newly opened Riverside Pub on River Road in Agawam. The Riverside Pub has a riverfront patio, kino, live music, a never-ending menu with everything from loaded potatoes and burgers to delicious entrees like chicken parm. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. The Riverside Pub, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. Push! Push! Come on! One more! Let's go! 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 Is this your idea of personal training? If so, you've got it all wrong. Or perhaps we've got it all right at Fitness Together, where we meet you where you are to get you where you want to be. Fitness Together trainers help you reach your goal at any fitness level, even despite ailments and physical limitations. So don't let a misconception keep you from having the energy to do what you love. Learn how you can get it together at Fitness Together Amherst or Northampton. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. For the first time in the history of the country and of the history of the United States, the Supreme Court has taken away a constitutional right. I would also describe this day as a day when women in the United States and people who can become pregnant have become second-class citizens. 1015-1400, we are the Valley. We are WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with constitutional law professor Emeritus Bruce Miller, constitutional law professor at Western New England University School of Law. We've been talking about the Supreme Court's recent, last week's decision on the Clean Water Act, which pretty much guts the Clean Water Act, having already gutted the Clean Air Act. So where, let's go to Buzz's questions first, where does this stand? Is the Supreme Court now saying that as a practical matter, leaving aside that, yes, Congress theoretically could pass a new law, that's not going to happen. Okay. Uh, but the United States government is now turned over to the polluters to do what they want because this, well, the Environmental Protection Agency has been neutered by the Supreme Court just as the Supreme Court wants. Yeah, that's that's basically where we stand right now. Uh, that is the clean the Clean Water Act has been kneecapped by by the Supreme Court. Uh, wetlands are uh, not protected uh, uh, unless, uh, under this arcane definition, they are contiguously and continuously connected to a, a waterway of of the United States, and that is where we are. And and what I was suggesting before the break would could points in two directions, it seems to me. Uh, one, and, and this, this, this one would be deeply controversial um, and would have to be uh, done with, with some measure of caution, is that uh, the president could say, we disagree with that decision. We will continue to enforce the Clean Water Act as we see it, and we will test the Supreme Court. Now, it seems to me you've got to be careful about when and how you do that, because what you don't want to do is set up some kind of situation where you just keep going back to the court and losing again and again. But something like what the right wing did with respect to abortion, that is uh, chip away, uh, uh, get pass, pass laws, adopt regulations that challenge um, what the court has said. That's something that progressives ought to be doing uh, more often. The second thing is public opinion, and public opinion matters. 
It mattered in 1937. The Supreme Court was trying to stop the Roosevelt administration, much as the current court is uh, today. And uh, that's something uh, that uh, pressure from the public uh, affects the court. I think it already has a little bit with the ethics questions. Bill, last word and, with respect to your, your, your column, the content of your column. Um, well, I, let, me, let, let me just have a final question. As a practical matter, Professor Miller, can the states do anything? Or is this really a just federal question? States can still do, there's nothing in this decision that affects uh, the state's ability to re regulate wetlands. In fact, part of Justice Alito's opinion for the court is, is sort of uh, an ode to state power here. But the reason he likes the power of the states is that the states have been domesticated by corporate America. Uh, they're just not very likely to, to do anything. Some cities, some municipalities might, but their state legislatures are, are probably going to uh, preempt and wipe out their ability to do it. Yes, the states and localities can still act, and there is hope there. But, you know, wetlands are a national problem. We have a continuous system uh, of, of federal waterways, uh, of national waterways, and a state-by-state -state solution is not a good one. Well, this it's always such a treat, Bruce Miller, to have you on first Monday of the month to talk about these really critical issues. And uh, as a member of the Talk to Talk Bar Association, mm -hmm. I thank you very much for being here. And thank you all for listening. Remember, don't just talk to talk. Walk the walk. Would you like a better world? It's as easy as grabbing a hammer and building a home. Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity builds strength, stability, and self-reliance through affordable home ownership in Hampshire and Franklin County. It's not a handout, it's a hand up. Habitat homes are built with donations of material, land, and services. Future homeowners and volunteers create a partnership with Habitat for Humanity to build a home, strengthen our neighborhoods, and create a legacy for our community. Help transform the world. Volunteer and support Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. PVHabitat.org. Environmental nonprofit Ocean River Institute is working with communities to tackle climate change with nature-based solutions that feature slowing water down and building more soil with grasses and plants. Research indicates that people acting in their own neighborhoods can build an inch of soil in a year and slow sea level rise WHMP down by as much as Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com on Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Monica Ricks in New York. Federal investigators are now examining the wreckage of a small plane and looking into what caused it to crash outside the nation's capital, killing all four people on board. CBS's Nicole D'Antonio has the latest from Washington. A loud sonic boom shattered the Sunday afternoon quiet in and around Washington, D.C. It was caused when F-16 fighter jets raced to intercept a Cessna Citation airplane that had entered restricted airspace. The pilot did not respond to repeated attempts to contact the plane, and it later crashed in a wooded mountainous area in western Virginia. Experts say the pilot may have had a medical emergency.
Iowa's Governor Kim Reynolds is slamming former President Trump for skipping a big Republican event this weekend. I think it was a missed opportunity. We had nearly a thousand Iowans that were at the state fairgrounds to listen to the candidates that are vying to be the president of the United States. Other GOP presidential contenders met with voters on big conservative talking points from immigration to abortion. Looks like Prince Harry will not be in court taking on tabloids today in Britain after all. I'm Vicki Barker in London. Harry's not expected to testify until tomorrow, but a mob of photographers had staked out the courthouse hoping he'd attend today's hearing. The judge hoped so too, expressing surprise that the Duke of Sussex wasn't there to hear his own case resume. Harry's lawyer explaining he'd flown in late so he could attend daughter Lilibet's second birthday. The World Health Organization wants to expand a global health certification system. The World Health Organization wants to use Europe's digital COVID pass as a basis for a new worldwide effort to track health across much of the globe. It would expand digitized international vaccination cards and will be aimed at protecting people from health threats, including possible future pandemics, and allow countries to track certain health issues. That's CBS's Kimmy McCormick. We have... One more thing. The one thing Apple's focused on today, virtual reality. The company is reportedly set to unveil a new VR headset at its annual developers conference, which could be another milestone notch in its gaming tech. And Twitter's not exactly thriving since Elon Musk took over. In fact, according to the New York Times, ad sales this spring are down 59% for the platform compared to this same time last year. Current and former employees are reportedly worried that advertisers are bailing over an increase in hate speech and pornography on the platform. There's also been a surge in ads for weed products and online gambling. Its new CEO takes over today. This is CBS News. Hiring's a lot easier with Indeed. Their powerful platform makes it easy to attract, interview, and hire candidates all in the same place. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article? or sensitive personal information about your family. Search engines don't always get it right. But right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free Reputation Report Card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Plans for the Community Resilience Hub in Northampton are moving forward. Mayor Gina Louise Shera signed an agreement to purchase the former First Baptist Church building located at 298 Main Street on Friday. Shera says together with its partner, Community Action Pioneer Valley, the city is excited to have secured a location for this critical community space. In addition to housing the Resilience Hub on the first floor, the building will also serve as headquarters for the Department of Health and Human Services Division of Community Care. Officials are investigating the cause of a barn fire in Amherst on Friday. According to the Amherst Fire Department, around 4.30 p.m., fire crews were sent to heavy smoke after a lightning strike on Meadow Street near the Hadley Town Line. 
When crews arrived, they found fire in a barn, which quickly spread to adjacent buildings, including the home. Three barns were destroyed in the blaze, but the house was able to be saved. There were no reported injuries. Tuition-free community college could be on the table for adults who are at least 25 years old under Governor Maura Healey's proposed plan. However, president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, Max Page, points out tuition and fees only account for about one-fifth of the cost of attending college. And if we are really committed to having working-class students get to go to college, and not just go to college but graduate, then we really need to respond to those needs. Page has said that the governor's plan is too limited in scope and instead says legislators should pass the CHERISH Act, which would guarantee debt-free higher education for all ages at two-year and four-year institutions. For tonight, it'll be partly sunny and breezy, chance for an afternoon shower, high 68 to 72. Tonight, mostly cloudy, chance for a passing shower, overnight lows 48 to 52. And the outlook for Tuesday, sun and clouds, chance for scattered showers and thunderstorms, highs in the low to mid-70s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And... Welcome to Talk to Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And since this is Monday, it is Mayor's Monday on WHMP and Talk the Talk. And we have with us the mayor of Northampton, Gina Louise Shera. Before we came on the air, Buzz had raised a question with the mayor about the sprinkler system and Bombex. So, well, we last spoke with the mayor about Bombex. We might as well pick it up for this edition of Mayor's Monday. So, Buzz, you had a question for the mayor. And Why my, don't you pose it? My question was, my understanding was that Bombex was, got that cease and desist letter since rescinded by the city um, on the basis of uh, it not having a sprinkler system, it fitting the criteria statutorily, they were told, of being a nightclub on the basis of six events a year when they serve alcohol in a room that's not where the main auditorium is in uh, 130 Pine Street. And so I asked the mayor, isn't that, what's the difference between that and the city-owned Academy of Music, which also has about 31-day uh, liquor uh, permits, liquor-serving permits a year, um, and it doesn't have a sprinkler system, I said to the mayor, at which point the mayor said to me, um, I'm very happy to address that rumor that I also have been hearing that the Academy of Music doesn't have a sprinkler system, which is incorrect. Um, that there, there have been a lot of rumors around this issue, um, but this one is maybe the most perplexing. Um, so the Academy of Music has had a sprinkler system for years. It's actually in the process right now of doing some modernization and improvement to that already existing system. Um, so it, it absolutely does have a sprinkler system and has for quite a while. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's also in a different zone. It's in the central business district. But yes, it, uh, it gets, um, it's allowed 30 uh, one-day liquor licenses uh, per year. But it, it is a safe sprinkler system. It, you know, it has a whole fire suppression system. It has um, a whole fire alarm system. It, it has a lot of... Um, stuff around it to uh, to ensure the safety of those folks who are attending performances. Well, thank you for disabusing me of my, uh, of my incorrect information. So, Mayor, I'd, I would like to ask you this. I don't, I don't want to spend all our time today on Bombex, mm -hmm. but, but I do want to, uh, I guess, get to the, the underlying kind of disquietude about it. 
about the controversy and the, 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 the common denominator of the criticism of the city seems to be, well, there's some other agenda going on here other than safety. Uh, and, you know, maybe it has to do with the neighbors, maybe it has to do with the noise complaint, maybe it has to do with one thing or another. And I'm wondering if you could address that. Sure. I mean, I, there is no other agenda here. Actually, we've been remarkably supportive of Bombix. And, you know, I just gave Bombix an ARPA grant earlier this year. Um, we have worked hard, the, the mayor's office, planning, city council, um, worked to change the zoning um, for Bombix uh, in that area so that they could apply for a change of use, which is the thing that they hadn't done. Um, so there's immense support of Bombix. Um, but, you know, I, I think, as I said last time, just because we, you know, there's great support for um, the mission of something doesn't mean that we can just set aside public safety. Um, so there, there had been noise complaints that had come in about it, and um, they were received by the License Commission because they have an entertainment license. And the, um, the License Commission asked the building department, the building department is, are, is the body that then measures, um, takes noise complaints and, and um, has the equipment to, to measure noise. Um, so the building department got that request and, you know, all of our departments work together. So the building department um, contacted fire and said, hey, we got this complaint. What do you know about the operations there? And fire said, we actually are not aware of operations that would uh, engender that kind of noise. Um, so we had the building inspector and the um, fire inspector captain uh, go investigate it, which is something that they do all the time. They work very closely and, and investigate things. So that is what triggered this. They went there and it was actually, you know, their observation, but Bombix themselves talking about what kind of um, performances were happening, the changes that they'd made to the building, um, how they were operating is what um, triggered the, you know, the, the original um, order that was then rescinded, but rescinded with the understanding that they were going to apply for a change of use that they were supposed to have applied for back when it passed in September. And that they will now work towards the fire suppression system that they need that, for example, the Academy has. Let's move on to another topic, Mayor, if we might. I'd like to uh, draw your attention to a guest column in today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, written by Rutherford Rudd Platt. Uh, it is titled, Destroying Northampton's Main Street to Save It. Uh, Platt is a, a Florence-based uh, professor emeritus of UMass Amherst, who wrote the book, Reclaiming American Cities, The Struggle for People, Place, and Nature. Since 1900, it was published by the UMass Press in 2014. There's a panel discussion tonight that he is, he is on that panel at Forbes Library at 5.30. And uh, he argued on our show Friday that the new plan for Main Street is really not a uh, uh, generic, uh, generic, is not a, uh, is not uh, a city inspired plan, but a state inspired plan, which I think is wrong, just plain wrong in terms of how the plan has come about. But I wish you would like, uh, would address that. And then I would like you to address a point made in another letter to the editor about the main street plan, which is, why don't we try it out before we spend all the money on it? How about we try it out for a week or two and see if it works? 
put the new uh, 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 traffic pattern into place and make sure we got something that really works before we spend all the money to make it permanent. What's your view? Um, so first of all, I, I did read Mr. Platt's uh, column. Mr. Platt, um, you know, tends to write often about state projects and, and tends to not like state projects. Um, but, you know, I, I would agree that that is absolutely not true. While this is largely being funded by MassDOT, um, this has been a, an extensive city process to get to our final design. So there have been um, many, many public meetings about it. There have been um, changes made after public input. We have had, um, there, you know, if you go on the planning and sustainability department's website, there's a whole section on the Pittsburgh Main Street um, design project and goes through the steps. There is a whole storyboard around it, um, or story map it's called. This has been a, a process that's been deeply embedded in our public discourse. We've been talking about it for years and have had conversations and then amendments and have heard from um, many, many people in the city around it. So while we are thankful that the state is prioritizing this project and it is on what's called the, the TIP, Traffic Improvement Program, um, because of its importance for safety, um, the, the city has been very much involved in what it would look like and how it's going to meet our, our current needs as a city and how it's going to meet our needs in the future, um, including, you know, I, it's, I think Mr. Platt is, or Dr. Platt, excuse me, um, is concerned about bike lanes. Um, you know, we, there are bike lanes all over the world, and um, we think that that's a really important component of it to try and uh, discourage car use and encourage people to use their bikes. And we know for many people, myself included, that um, they don't bike when they come downtown because it doesn't feel safe. Doesn't feel safe. And so the bike lanes are going to increase safety. I, 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 I'm interested in that and I'm interested and I think I'm convinced by what you have said on this show before and what others have said, which is that the bike lanes actually will perform a really important function in years to come as we become less dependent on automobiles for short trips, which is a sea change for us as a society and as a community. I get that. What the part of this uh, plan that continues to uh, leave me with questions has to do actually with the parking and the parking on Main Street. And I would feel better personally if I knew that this plan worked. So I'd like to go back to this suggestion in a letter to the editor last week, which was, can we try this out and see if it works before we just put all the infrastructure and money into the infrastructure? Um, you know, we. I feel like we have tried different things with downtown and we have done sort of different experiments with it. And um, most places in the world, there is we actually have large sections of downtown that have parallel parking already that function, right? So there's really only this, this one sort of section in the middle that has um, angled parking. And some of that angled parking is remaining, um, but some of it is being converted to parallel to allow for more space for um, and to allow for more space for outdoor dining, more space on the sidewalks. Um, that's something actually that, you know, we have been experimenting a bit over the last three years with as well. So as if you look on Main Street right now, some parking spaces are taken up. 
um, by uh, outdoor dining. So that, that is an experiment that we have very successfully been doing for the last few years by converting some parking to dining that is um, that has been, I think, loved by many in the community, certainly appreciated by our restaurants. And um, that's one of those things that we are looking to make permanent with this change. One argument against the change, always against change from downtown, is that it hurts businesses when you reduce parking. To which the answer is, wait a second, we have a, what, 400 parking space parking garage. We have parking lots in various places. It's a couple of blocks walk at most to get to a store from a, a convenient parking space. That said, I would like to know whether or not you as the mayor or others in your administration get pushback from this diminution in number of parking spaces caused by outside dining in the summer. You know, I have not heard in the last year um, really complaints about it. You know, they're, they're always a little bit of grumbling, but for the most part, I think that people really appreciate the, the value added by this additional outdoor dining space. And um, the, that far outweighs um, the, the loss of a few spaces. So, um, it, you know, it's, it's a good test for the fact that we do have a good amount of parking. You know, there's about a thousand spaces off of Main Street when you include the garage and then the lots and all of the other spaces around. So within five minutes of the very center of downtown, there are about a thousand spaces that are available. And that's one of the things that we just really want to encourage people is if, if you are able, if you are not able and you need an accessible spot, then those spots should be prioritized for you. If you are able to walk a block or two, um, I encourage you to do that. That's what we're trying to do. Or as you were saying before, Bill, if you're able to bike or walk downtown instead of bringing your car, which a lot of Northampton can do, um, that's the goal. That's what we're trying to do. Is uh, the, get people to think differently about transportation. The last time I saw you, Mayor, was at the bike breakfast, which was intended <laughs> to encourage exactly what we're talking about. And I learned something I'd, I'd never heard before. One of the speakers said, George, I think, said that 40% of carbon emissions by cars are caused by trips that are three miles or less from one's home. That astonished me. And if you think about promoting bike use, um, that would eliminate a lot of carbon emissions. Right? Isn't that amazing? I actually just was at Jackson Street School this morning um, for their, their kind of climate day of action. They invited me to come to hear about what they were learning about. And one of the things they were doing were they were um, making posters trying to encourage people not to idle, right? So a lot of that carbon comes from being stopped at a light, waiting in traffic, um, or just kind of idling. And so, you know, that's, if we can cut down on those emissions, that's huge. I think that some of this is a societal and cultural change that we're talking about. Because in Europe, people ride bikes all the time. Here, bicycle riding sounds like something that only tree huggers do in their spare time. At least that's sort of the tradition of it. And that, I think, you know, taking this from a sort of a recreational you know, kind of slightly, slightly eccentric way to get around, to something that is mainstream and accepted and normal and regular and important and, and something that we accommodate. Um, I mean, I think that that is something that requires our taking a look at how we think about ourselves and our community. And I'm wondering if you agree with that, Mayor. 
I absolutely do. You know, all over the world, um, bikes are a main form of transportation for folks. And, and they coexist with them in, in, um, in a way that I think this country, you know, we are a very car-centric country. And I think that minds are changing and we are sort of making some adjustments, but it, sometimes you have to take some action to really get people to, um, to recognize that we can do things a different way and that our behavior is malleable and that that has positive impacts for the world. We are speaking with the mayor, Gene Louise Sheriff, the mayor of Northampton. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to ask the mayor to address two headlines. The first in the Daily Hampshire Gazette report, mayor elected officials deserve raise. Mayor position would pay $130,000, up from $92,500. The front page of the Gazette and then the front page of the Republican. Police chief confronts extensive turnover. 50 officers departed in the last five years. Dateline Northampton. We'll ask the mayor about those two stories right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Here comes the money. You could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. Are you tired of living with chronic pain, knee pain, joint pain? Listen carefully, because now there are new regenerative treatments now available here. QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, is now open, giving lasting relief to people with joint pain with no surgery, no drugs, and no downtime. Regenerative medicine uses highly concentrated healing agents from your own body. These powerful treatments can restore and repair damaged tissue in your achy joints, so you can move again without pain. QC Kinetics has over 100 clinics nationwide wide and has treated thousands of patients with incredible success. Their advanced protocols are an exciting way to manage pain from arthritis and injury without surgery or steroids or pain pills. If you've got pain in your knees, shoulders, hip, or back, you need to check out these new treatments. They can actually help your body restore and repair itself. Call now to schedule your free consultation with the local medical professionals at QC Kinetics. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Four five zero. Twenty years ago, we envisioned creating a brighter future for people and planet. Now, PV Squared celebrates a big milestone: two decades of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar projects for homes and businesses in our community. PV Squared is a worker-owned co-op. When you partner with us, you get a team dedicated to the success of your project, from your first meeting to servicing your system down the road. Build solar right and do business better. It's the co-op difference. Learn more at pvsquared.coop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. If it's Monday, it's Mayor's Monday on WHMP and Talk the Talk. I'd like to return to the headline of today's Republican as we speak with the mayor of Northampton this Mayor's Monday, Gina Louise Shera. Headline, top of the fold. I guess the Republican really wanted to play this up. A police chief confronts extensive turnover. 50 officers departed in last five years. Dateline Northampton, uh, a call out for, uh, from Jody Casper, police chief Jody Casper, uh, 
among other things, Chiefs, the Chiefs had a number of reasons why there was trouble retaining and hiring new officers. Um, one being that one of the reasons, but only one of the reasons, but the one that the Republicans said, hey, look at this, pay attention. Um, the quote, some officers didn't want to work for a community where they didn't feel valued. She also said, at least she said a number of other reasons as well. So tell us where things stand with regard to the police department in Northampton. Uh, and I guess bring us up to date from when the city council with you on the council mayor uh, voted for his 10% cut that, well, in retrospect, may not seem like it was such a good idea. Your thoughts? So, you know, I think we talked about this last week a little bit. There is a national staffing shortage for police, um, and we are certainly experiencing it here. Um, so that cut that happened in 2020 for FY21 um, was a 10% cut. So there was staff that was lost there. So there's reduced staff to begin with. And then these last few years, it's been really challenging to um, to recruit new folks. And, and people have been leaving policing um, in larger numbers. So um, that is certainly something that, that the chief has struggled with. And I think everyone has struggled with, all, you know, um, police departments across the country. Um, one, so on Thursday, the budget passed the city council. And one of the sort of the, the creative way that we're trying to help this issue is by creating some space in the budget for um, recruiting and new um, officers in training through the process. So it's a really long process. It's like generally a 14 to 18 month process from when someone um, is interviewed and then there it's a six month academy it's four months of field training and the academy is dependent on when the state runs an academy they run them once or twice a year um, so if you don't hit that academy just right you can have a really long time in between so it's a very long process from when someone uh, is interviewed to when they are actually serving as a sworn officer so um, we are trying to create some space in the budget and i'm grateful to the council for approving that so that um, when you see, let's say, a retirement coming up, there were three this year that the chief knew were happening, but she wasn't able to get get someone into the academy because until the day they retired, there wasn't that budget line um, well, that, for that. Well, that makes a lot of sense to prepare for the vacancy so you don't have to wait all this. You'll still have to wait, but not wait as extensive amount of time. So I'm left with the impression from this article that there's no quick solution to all this. The Northampton Police Department is going to be understaffed for some time. Is that correct? I would agree that there's no quick solution to it. So, um, you know, we have a significant amount of overtime every month. So with these vacancies that we have that we can't fill fast enough, um, it's averaging about 431 hours of overtime a month. So the goal is to bring that down. So if we can get those vacancies filled more quickly, that will bring that overtime down. But um, the, you know, I think there is a question about whether there is enough staff as it is to meet the calls. So that's a conversation we're, you know, we're having and looking at. We also have the Department of Community Care that is going to be, um, you know, they're hiring for right now the responders, and then they are going to, uh, in September, start to be able to um, to respond to their calls. So, you know, there, there are a bunch of things that we are kind of sussing out at this moment, but right now you're right. It's not a, a quick fix to um, our staffing issue in the PD, but it is a huge step forward to be able to get people through the process more quickly. And the Department of Community Care come September may be able to take some of the calls that would lead, which would leave more time 
and more officers to respond to calls where officers are really needed. Is that fair? That, that is certainly the hope. We, you know, it's not clear yet how many, how much it will impact the PD call volume, but um, that is one of the hopes is that some of this, you know, the things that officers have been responding to for years that are kind of outside of their purview, but they're the 24-hour response. They're the only people to call. You know, that's one of the goals is, is to create an alternative response that, that meets people's needs. So, Mayor, our last topic for today, front page of today's Daily Hampshire Gazette report, Mayor elected officials deserve raise. Mayor's position would pay 130000 up from $92,500. Salaries for counselors, school committee members would nearly double. Uh, you're going to get pushback on this. Uh, it, when the top official is uh, slated for a raise, maybe, um, it engenders a lot of public comment. There's going to be quite a bit. I'm wondering what your view is of this report and what the salaries for elected officials in Northampton, including that of the mayor, what they should be. So this is a um, this is a process that by the charter needs to be done within every 10 years. Um, and this, uh, it, you need to elect or you need to appoint an elected officials compensation review board. Um, the last board had their report done um, in 2014. So it was actually the, my very first term as a city councilor was the last time that there was this review board um, and, and a report with recommendations. So um, this, I had to convene this um, by charter. And so this is a council process. And I'm, I'm really grateful to the council for taking this on. We just got through the budget process. Um, it's been a very busy time for them. But um, this is something that is working through the council. And I, I'm thankful to them for tackling this kind of this tough thing. And you're right, it's an uncomfortable, tough thing, how we have to do these things. Um, so uh, you know, I, I appreciate that they are they are taking it on, and um, I appreciate everyone's sort of kind words about my work and my position. Um, I'm actually, as the as in the position I am right now, I think I'm the only uh, elected official, someone currently serving, who's actually I sits on all of those bodies or has sat on all of those bodies, right? So I was a I was a ward counselor, I was a counselor at large, I was council president. I'm on the school committee. I'm a uh, I'm a trustee of Smith Folk, um, so I uh, I know how much work all of those positions are, and so you know I'm I'm grateful for the council uh, looking at this, and and I, and I want to thank the the um, review board who spent a lot of time and did a lot of research on it. Whatever the decision is, the process is going to get, I would think, kind of personal, and. But, and, and it will involve the self-interest, and that's the, uh, both the elected officials who are there in, in these positions now, because it's not just the mayor's position that would be increased. So with the school committee and the city councilors, uh, they would get a significant raise as well. Um, how are you going to, I mean, how are you going to handle this going forward? And do you, I guess the question is, do you support these recommendations? So again, this is not the mayor's process at all. It's fully a city council process. And so, you know, it's one that I went through, as I said, my first term as city council. And it is, it's a hard thing to, to take on, um, even though by charter it has to be done. So um, I, you know, I was, I was a, a bit surprised at the recommendations. Um, and I think that they, they did kind of a, a lot of work at looking at 
the actual hours that are spent. I will say that in these now about 10 years that I've been serving as elected official in Northampton, um, there has been a change. I think the expectations on elected officials has changed. Um, social media has only sort of grown those expectations. I think the pandemic also has, has changed some expectations on people's um, availability and, and what is expected of elected officials. Um, so there is a, a lot of time and work that goes into these positions. Um, so again, I'm just really thankful that the council is, is taking on this tough thing that we have to do. And I think I just didn't get an answer. I mean, I, I did get an answer. I appreciate that. But you're not going to say whether you are endorsing these recommendations or not? I don't endorse that. I mean, I, I don't endorse or don't endorse them. It's This is not my process. So it would feel inappropriate for me to, to um, inject myself into this process. It is not, it is something outside of what I do. Um, it's fully with, with the council. And so um, I don't, you know, I don't, it, it would feel inappropriate for me to put my thumb on that scale. Okay. All right. We thank you so much for, for your time and for being with us every month and for your willingness to come on and answer difficult questions. Mayor Gina Lee Sheriff, thank you so very much. Thank you very much. Good to be with you, Bill and Buzz. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Plans for the Community Resilience Hub in Northampton are moving forward. Mayor Gina Louise Shera signed an agreement to purchase the former First Baptist Church building located at 298 Main Street on Friday. Shera says, together with its partner, Community Action Pioneer Valley, the city is excited to have secured a location for this critical community space. In addition to housing the Resilience Hub on the first floor, the building will also serve as headquarters for the Department of Health and Human Services Division of Community Care. Officials are investigating the cause of a barn fire in Amherst on Friday. According to the Amherst Fire Department, around 4.30 p.m., fire crews were sent to heavy smoke after a lightning strike on Meadow Street near the Hadley Town Line. When crews arrived, they found fire in a barn, which quickly spread to adjacent buildings, including the home. Three barns were destroyed in the blaze, but the house was able to be saved. There were no reported injuries. Tuition-free community college could be on the table for adults who are at least 25 years old under Governor Maura Healey's proposed plan. However, President of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, Max Page, points out tuition and fees only account for about one-fifth of the cost of attending college. And if we are really committed to having working-class students get to go to college, and not just go to college, but graduate, and we really need to respond to those needs. Page has said that the governor's plan is too limited in scope and instead says legislators should pass the Cherish Act, which would guarantee debt-free higher education for all ages at two-year and four-year institutions. For tonight, it'll be partly sunny and breezy, chance for an afternoon shower, high 68 to 72. Tonight, mostly cloudy, chance for a passing shower, overnight lows 48 to 52. And the outlook for Tuesday, sun and clouds, chance for scattered showers and thunderstorms, highs in the low to mid-70s. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Adam Stremko on 101.5 WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. 
occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. We finally entered into a more balanced real estate market. Hi, I'm Craig Delapena, a part of the Trailside team at the Murphy's Realtors. I've been helping buyers and sellers in our valley and beyond for close to 20 years. I specialize in homes near rail trails, as well as antique or historic homes. Together, we'll create a plan that gets you to the next chapter and will minimize your stress along the way. Visit NorthamptonRealtor.com innovator. Does your partner threaten or isolate you? Do they control where you go, who you talk to, or what choices you make? Are you afraid of what they might do? You have the right to a healthy and safe relationship. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, physical, Safe Passage is here for you. It's all free and completely confidential. Call our helpline to explore your options and plan for safety. That's 413-586-5066, Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Or visit safepass.org today. Do you use home oxygen? Do you know about the increased risk of fires and burns? No one should smoke in your home. There's more oxygen in the air, which makes fires burn faster and hotter. Furniture, clothes, bedding, and hair absorb oxygen and can catch fire more easily. Keep 10 feet away from any flame or heat source. For more information, call 1-877-9-NO-FIRE or go to mass.gov DFS. Breathe easy and use your home oxygen safely. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. This is our weekly segment, Writer's Block, with Megan Zinn, and always uh, important, uh, edifying, entertaining <laughs> authors that you bring for us to meet. Who do yes, we have this week? Yes, I'm welcome. Well, my guest is Claire Fuller. Welcome, Claire. Um, Hello, nice yeah. to be here. Thank you. Um, so in, in addition, um, Claire's latest novel is The Memory of Animals, which we'll be talking about today. Um, she is the author of the, her other novels are Our Endless, Our Endless Numbered Days, which won the Desmond Elliott Prize, Swimming Lessons, Bitter Orange, and Unsettled Ground, which won the Costa Novel Award and was a finalist for the Women's Prize for Fiction. Um, and as I said, Lay's novel is The Memory of Animals, which is described as an ambitious, deeply imagined work of survival and suspense, grief and hope, consequences and connectedness that asks us, asks what truly defines us and the lengths we will go to to rescue ourselves and those we love. And Claire is appearing at Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley tomorrow, Tuesday, June 6th at 7 p.m., she will be in conversation with Catherine Newman, um, who's on our show several months ago. And you can find out more info on the Odyssey website, odysseybks.com. So, Claire Fuller, tell us, tell us about your new novel, The Memory of Animals, a little, little elevator speech. Yeah, uh, it's about a young woman called Nephi, who um, signs up for a vaccine trial in London. Um, and when she's there she's given the vaccine and she's given the virus there are 17 other volunteers and she has to stay in isolation for several weeks but when she's given the vaccine and the virus she has a, a very bad reaction and is more or less 
unconscious for several days. And when she comes around, when she wakes up, she finds that the world has turned without her. And there had been a kind of my fairly minor pandemic going on. Um, but now it has mutated and it seems to be what's outside is much, much worse. And all the other, well, all the doctors and the nurses have left from oh this gosh. unit, have gone home, and only four volunteers remain. So she has to kind of negotiate her way with these people, understanding who they are. And there is some kind of central mystery at the, at the centre of the book, which she has to kind of unravel, I suppose. All right. Could you uh, read us a, sel a selection from the book? Yeah, very happy to. So this is just a few chapters in. Um, this is when she is waking up from uh, being ill and trying to work out what is going on. When I wake properly for the second time, I feel better, cooler, more rested. In fact, the room is chilly and I pull the duvet up to my chin. The items on the bedside table still haven't changed position. The empty water jug and the plate the mug with vaccine biofarm on the side. The box of pills is there and the interior blind is still down. The picture of the CNN building has gone from the TV screen and now shows only white text on a black background. Sorry, something has gone wrong. I lower myself off the bed and go to the exterior window, dragging the duvet with me. The air conditioning is blasting out a fresh breeze, but it's sunny outside, maybe midday, and when I stare again towards the east, the sun is still rising, only now with a cloud of dark smoke above it. I look and I look, but there's nothing else to see, and no one is in the alleyway, not even any more deer, and no cars or people past the far end, no siren sound. Using the wall as a prop, I go to the bathroom and stick my head under the tap and drink, gulping down air and water, stopping to belch and then drinking again. I grip the sides of the sink and look in the mirror. I'm shocked to see a whole real human being as though I were expecting to no longer have a structure. No skin containing bones, but instead something more fluid, slippery, a liquid body that could flow into a dark corner or a desk drawer, a shoe, a drain. Back in my bedroom, I press my ear to the adjoining wall, listening for the Irish girl laughing or the sound of her TV but I don't hear anything. How long is it since I've been outside this room or someone has come in? Time has folded in on itself, corners and triangles overlapping and forming dark pockets. And now that I'm trying to uncrease it, it is flattening into a different shape. I make my way around the bed to the door and I press down on the handle slowly, silently. I don't know what I'm expecting on the other side. I only know that something is very wrong. There is no noise in the corridor, no chatter of the nurses at their station, no rattle of Mike's trolley. The handle depresses, but the door won't open. I turn the twist lock and its clunk is loud, but still the door doesn't release. I give it a final tug and then let go. I try to remember how the door is accessed from the outside. It seems so long since I came in here with Boo. Did she have a key card which she waved in front of a reader or pushed into a slot? Have they locked me in because I was given the virus and tried to leave? That can't be right. I would be given food, I would be checked on. Hello, I say, 
my cheek pressed to the door, too quietly for anyone to hear. No answer. I pull the duvet closer around my neck and consider pushing the emergency button above the bed or shouting, banging on the door, my fist raised, about to thump when the thought arrives. Not that I'm unsure about who might come, but that no one will. Oh, my gosh. Um, that image of the uh, the television, CNN, showing nothing, I think in, in our era when there's constant media everywhere, the idea of a blank television screen is incredibly telling and eerie. Um, my guest is Claire Fuller, um, and she just read to us um, a selection from The Memory of Animals, her new novel. Um, so I was going to ask what sparked the story. Obviously, we know what sparked the story, uh, the pandemic. But what? Well, what, what, actually, yes, no? No. Okay. Okay, tell me. Yeah, because I started writing it in September 2019. Oh, my gosh. That's alarming. Yeah. <laughs> how, so tell us how, you, how the spark happened and, and how this sort of dovetailed with the actual pandemic. Yeah. So a, son, a friend of my son's uh, had signed up for a thing in London called Flu Camp. I don't know. I assume something similar happens in the States. But you can sign up for it's a drug trial, a vaccine and a virus. And then you have to stay in isolation in a unit for two weeks and they see whether the vaccine works. You're monitored. And lots of students do it because mm -hmm. yeah. they probably don't have the antibodies and they paid a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, what an interesting yeah. start for a story. Somebody signs up for a vaccine trial while there is a pandemic in the rest of the world. <laughs> so this was you know, five, six months before we started hearing about COVID and before certainly the UK went into lockdown at the end of March 2020. Wow. Um, I just thought it would be an interesting scenario with ha without having any idea that, you know, real life would catch up with fiction. Well, you was... are prescient. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is Writer's Block with Megan Zinn and her guest Claire Fuller, who's the author of the novel the Memory of Animals. She'll be discussing this tomorrow night. That's Tuesday night at Odyssey Books at 7 o'clock. Is that right? That's correct. At 7 o'clock. And we're going to be back and discuss this more with Megan and Claire right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New, New Bedford or Fall River. 1015-1400, we are the Valley. We are WHMP. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Local farms are welcoming spring to the co-op. Asparagus popping up and ready to eat in bunches. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats and sausage, everything to kick off grilling season. In the co-op cheese department, welcome the maple season with maple-washed Willoughby, a delicious local cheese washed with Vermont maple liqueur. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Having a hard time with your mental health or substance use? You have options. The 24-7 Behavioral Health Helpline is your front door to care. Call 833-773-2445 to speak with a trained staff member and get connected to the support you need. Want to see someone right away? 
Visit mass.gov cbhcs to find your local community behavioral health center, a service of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, greasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the three billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with our Writer's Block weekly segment with Megan Zinn and her guest, Claire Fuller. Megan? All right. And we're talk- I'm speaking with Claire Fuller and her about her new book, The Memory of Animals. And just before the break, Claire was telling us that um, she, the, although this is a book about a pandemic, it was started before the COVID-19 pandemic, and was not initially influenced by the COVID-19 pandemic. How did the actual pandemic um, impact the book and your writing of it, though? It really did, because suddenly everybody were, was was expert on pandemics. Mm-hmm. We all knew the terminology. We all knew certainly what was happening. I mean, we might might not have known, of course, what was going to happen in the future, but yeah, we all knew about it. So I, in a in a way, I had to change it radically, mm-hmm. but also um, try and do it in such a way that people wouldn't weren't able to say, well, that would never happen because, of course, they felt like uh, that you know, well, they were living through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I actually made my pandemic in the novel much worse yes. than COVID-19. Um, ch- changed that significantly. Yes, much more deadly, I, 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 um, if I'm yes. correct. Yes. Um, how did um, you know, diving, being immersed in a story of a pandemic, though not the same one, did it um, help or hurt you, you know, in terms of coping with the pandemic yourself? Well, at first... I stopped writing mm-hmm. for a couple of months. I think in the same way, probably lots of people question what they were doing. Yeah. Is is this worthwhile? Does anybody need any more fiction, any more books, <laughs> let alone about a pandemic? Um, and, you know, should I go and retrain as a nurse or something oh, that's actually a bit more useful? But then I... I sat and I thought about it well firstly I'm I'm not sure I'm capable of, of doing anything else but also I think people do need stories and, yes. and that's why you know so many more sales of books went up during mm-hmm. the pandemic yeah. people wanted a distraction um, and in a funny kind of way my life didn't change that much mm-hmm. my family were at home but I was still kind of fairly isolated which is how I am when I write I'm I'm alone Mm -hmm. I'm on my laptop all day anyway without seeing many people so that didn't really change yeah that's really interesting um and um and and we've definitely has proven that we do need um writers um just as important um particularly in a time of a pandemic and and other uh, other people who create art um my guest is claire fuller and um we're talking about her latest novel the memory of animals and she is um appearing at the odyssey bookshop in south hadley tomorrow june 6 at 7 p.m and that's the first leg of a book tour for you correct 
Yes, well, I am speaking in New York tonight. Ah, okay. Uh, I have an event at McNally Jackson. Mm -hmm. So Odyssey Bookshop is on the day of publication. So um, oh, it's nice. kind of the most important one, of, of course. course. <laughs> of course. And this is um, your first sort of uh, tour in the United States. What um, sparked um, doing this tour at this point? Well, I think my publisher, Tin House, you know, wanted me to come over. Um, I have lots of connections with um, independent bookshops and booksellers. Mm -hmm. You know, I really want to support them. They really support me. Um, and it's just delightful to be able to travel around and see people in real life, meet readers in real life. Um, I have a lot of American readers. My books have all been published in the US. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I think it's nine events, nine cities I'm going to, including one in Canada. Um, so it's going to be a busy time, but I'm yeah. really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, so you, um, you started writing later in life. Um, what, um, I sort of held you back. I don't know if anything necessarily held you back, but what, what kind of kept you from launching a writing career and then what actually got you started? Well, I never intended to be a writer. Hmm. I studied sculpture, first of all, and worked as a sculptor for a little while and then had to go out and get a job that would earn the money. And so I worked in marketing for many years, for 23 years. And I've always been a reader, a huge reader, you know, reading a couple of books a week. But it just never occurred to me to be a writer. I thought they were different people from me. I couldn't imagine how a book was created. So I didn't do any creative writing until I was 40. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of did it as part of an art project, really, mm. that I was doing. Uh, kind of around public art and I wrote some short stories and then I realized oh I actually kind of quite enjoy this or <laughs> I enjoy having written <laughs> yes as um, a lot of writers say yeah. so so I carried on from there oh, wonderful um what what you you know you talked about um reading um a lot what are some of the authors who have really influenced you Oh, my goodness, so many. <laughs> and, and in fact, lots of American authors who I still love to read. Um, I always quote Shirley Jackson as mm, one of my mm -hmm, favorites. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I quite like, well, I like how she writes. I like her the darkness in her novels. Um, but then I'm still really enjoying Elizabeth Strout. Um, but then uh, people like Ian McEwan, Casio mm -hmm. uh, Ishiguru, oh, all sorts, mm -hmm. all sorts have influenced me. And uh, would you just, is your work described as speculative fiction? Is that sort of the best way to describe it? Um, I think there's an element of speculative yeah. fiction in The Memory of Animals, but not so much in no. the previous four books. Okay. It's just I was quite interested in that in this novel. Uh -huh. Yes, okay. Um, and you often, I was noticing from your other books, you often, um, they are books often about people who are isolated from society in some ways. Um, can you talk about that a little bit, how that, um, how that interests you? And my, my guest is, is Claire Fuller, um, and we're talking about her novel, The Memory of Animals. It's not something I ever think, oh, I'm mm. going to write about people who are isolated, but, but that it just comes up as a, as a theme. I don't know where that comes from, but maybe I wonder whether it's just having a small cast of characters in most novels. And so you set them 
in a place mm -hmm. where there's there's just them and not very many other people and and see how they cope especially if you kind of put them in a place where they can't very easily escape from it mm -hmm. whether that's due to social circumstances or or something like a pandemic i think you it's like it's about putting few people in extreme situations yeah. and seeing how they manage yeah and bill you have a question i do i'd like to know claire your this novel's written in the first person i did this i felt that i saw that was that intentional when you began? I was going, always going to do, you were always going to put this in the first person? Yeah, I really wanted to know, to be inside Nephi's head, somebody who chose to do this and, and really get to understand her motivation, mm -hmm. the issues she's facing. And she uses a piece of new technology, that's the speculative element to kind of travel back, to revisit her memories. and. I wanted to know what that felt like from inside her own head. Um, and and I also wanted it to be very kind of um, of of the moment. Mm -hmm. So it's it's first person present tense to to make it to give it some kind of pace and some kind of element of anxiety almost as you read it. Yeah. Um, just a, a final question before we wrap up. Um, you mentioned earlier how much you love independent bookstores, and I, and I came across a lovely little piece in which writers talked about their favorite bookstores. Um, can you tell us what your favorite bookstore is and, and why it's your favorite? Well, there's, there's lots of them on my trip that I haven't met, you know, haven't been to in the U.S. yet. I've been to a few in New York before, but... Um, I guess I should say my local one in my nearest city of Winchester in Hampshire, um, P&G Wells, who is apparently is the oldest independent bookshop in the UK. It certainly looks very old, lots of oak panelling, very Lovely. beautiful place. If anybody's ever visiting Winchester, I would recommend it. And Claire Fuller will be at the Odyssey, Odyssey Book Bookshop. Yes, this um, tomorrow night, Tuesday at 7 p.m. And you can find more information on odysseybks.com. Thank you so much for being with us, Claire. Thank you so much for having me. Really been a pleasure. And for everyone else, thank you so much for joining us on Talk the Talk. Remember to walk the walk. His son is working for the Daily Mail It's a steady job, but he wants to be a paperback writer Paperback writer Looking to take a little breather from the news? We don't blame you. Why don't you turn the dial over to our pure oldie station? I'm walking, yeah, the I'm talking It's the music you grew up with WHMP and the News will be right here when you get back. The Valley's Pure Oldies, 96.9 and 100.5. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing North resources to children and caregivers. A Northampton Radio Group station. It's a 